You probably missed this. It wasn't big news this week. Congressman Charles Schumer of New York held a press conference on Monday with the head of the New York City Police. Two auxiliary policemen had been shot and killed in the line of duty a year ago while confronting a gunman named David Garvin. Federal law says that the families of public safety officers, even volunteers like these auxiliary police, should get death benefits when something like that happens. But the Justice Department turned them down on a technicality. And on Monday, Schumer was mad. The officers, they were in uniform, they had shields, they had gone through four months of the NYPD's basic training course. They acted to protect their fellow New Yorkers that night as trained, experienced NYPD volunteers. What more could the Justice Department be asking for? Yet they disagree. They don't qualify as officers of the peace through a faulty, narrow interpretation of the law that says because they didn't have the authority to arrest Mr. Garvin, they don't qualify. Auxiliary officers have the power to detain a suspect, but not to arrest him. It's as if the bureaucrats in Washington were looking for a way to get out of this responsibility. And what we have to do is persuade the Justice Department to stop playing these tawdry and really uh, low games. Just a couple months ago, the family of volunteer fireman Glenn Winnick finally got the Justice Department to pay his death benefit. He died on September 11th at the World Trade Center, doing rescue work at the South Tower. Again, the department had fought the benefit on a technicality and only paid after five years of fighting when the federal courts ordered them to. There's a style to this administration, what Yale Law professor Jack Balkin calls a lawyering style, where they fight as hard as they can every battle on all fronts unrelentingly to get their way. It's been an emphasis on taking extremely hard-line positions on executive power and pushing them, really, uh, uh, as far as you can, sometimes taking positions that would be seen to be unreasonable in the hopes that, in fact, uh, either you'll get your way because people will give in, or else, if they push back, they'll push back to a place where you actually get a lot of what you wanted in the first place. For example, he says, take the way the administration has tried to get around the ban on torture. This is an area where the law had been thought to be completely clear. There are lots of statutes, there are treaties that all made torture illegal in the United States. But the administration had several strategies to get around these. One strategy was simply to define the word torture and or cruel and human degrading treatment in such a narrow way that they didn't capture a lot of what ordinary citizens would think of as being torture. So one is just very narrow construction, reason, unreasonable construction. But the most interesting argument... The most innovative argument the Bush administration made was this. That if a push came to shove and somebody were to claim that the president was in violation of the anti-torture statute and the War Crimes Act and all these other things, well, these laws are simply unconstitutional as applied to the president when the president acts as commander-in-chief. Now, that claim, the last claim, which was the president can't be bound by Congress when he acts in his capacity as commander-in-chief, was, in fact, the most radical of all the claims. It was, uh, it was close to the idea of the president as dictator, since the president, when he acts in his capacity as commander-in-chief, can basically rule by decree, and he isn't, can't be bound by laws to the contrary. There are really two things about this that are new. First is the sheer inventiveness with which the president's men go about asserting the president's powers. They're using tactics and arguments that other presidents have not used, or used rarely. Second, and more important, 
president is claiming that he has all kinds of powers that previous presidents have not claimed. The president's men say that everything the executive branch does, and picture that is a lot of things. These are the federal agencies that oversee the environment and immigration and education and energy policy. And especially when it comes to the job of commander-in-chief of the armed forces, they say nobody, no law, even a law passed by Congress and signed by the president himself, no law can tell the president what to do or how to do it. They say it's unconstitutional. This is such a radically new idea that even some conservatives have trouble with it. When the president was ignoring a law called the FISA law, the FISA law says that if the president wants to spy on Americans' phone calls and emails, he can do that. But first he has to get permission from a special secret court to do it. When the president declared that he could just ignore that law, that law that is specifically targeted at his behavior, George Will said that this was a monarchical doctrine that was, quote, refuted by the plain text of the Constitution. Grover Norquist said, quote, there is no excuse for violating the law. Paul Weyrich wondered, what if a president he didn't like decided he could ignore any law? He worried, what would President Hillary do with these same powers? Today we're going to talk about this uh, lawyering style, this unrelenting style that the administration has. It's a style that kind of makes sense when you're dealing with issues of national security and keeping the country safe, with big stuff. But this style has become a habit. It seems to be applied to almost anything. Even death benefits for firemen and police. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our show today, The Audacity of Government. We're going to talk about this style the administration has, this unrelenting style. We have two stories for you. Not about big things. Not about big government policies. These are tiny examples. Two of the thousands of little things that the federal government does that most of us never, ever hear about. Things so small that it is hard to understand why the administration is putting up such a fight about them in the first place. We look for answers. Stay with us. Next one, the commish versus the prez. Okay, let's stop and think for a second and try to imagine the least controversial thing our government does when it comes to foreign policy. And I'm sure that there's some uh, job out there stamping custom forms at the airport or something like that that is very, 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 very uncontroversial. But certainly right up alongside that vital but boring task is the task of keeping crap off the border with Canada. That's right. For 10 feet on either side of our Canadian border in what is called the 20-foot swath or the border vista, nobody is supposed to build any buildings or plant any trees or erect any fences or do anything that would block the view. It's impossible to patrol the border if we can't actually see it and monitor it with security cameras, and move freely along it. And so 10 feet on either side of the border is always kept clear for the security of both countries. Since the year 1908, this important job has been done by a special international commission run by two guys, one from Canada and one from the U.S. They make the official map of the border. They put up little markers indicating where the border is. And occasionally, just a couple times a year, they have to tell somebody not to build 10 feet from the border. So you're looking right into Canada is what you're doing right now. And you can just barely see the mountains today, just barely, but they're, they really are. They're, they're magnificent. And that's what we wanted. We wanted something that was peaceful and quiet. 72-year-old retiree Shirley Liu and her husband Herbert moved here to Blaine, Washington, to a piece of land right on the border in 2003. It is not entirely peaceful and quiet. They're just up the road from the third busiest border crossing between the United States and Canada. 
There are helicopters and Border Patrol and sensors in the ground. And from her backyard, you can see a watchtower. People are illegally crossing all the time. The border itself is a ditch at the back end of her land. And the Luz accidentally started an international incident, one that may lead to the dismantling of a hundred-year-old treaty and a redefinition of the president's powers. And they did it by building a wall. A wall near the edge of their property. A wall that lots of people seem to hate. A wall that everybody takes pictures of when they stop their cars and shake their heads. See what I mean? (laughs) They beep horns. They moon us. They throw garbage at our wall. The wall is four feet high, maybe 85 feet long, and it's solid, concrete with rebar inside, designed to keep Shirley's land from eroding into the ditch at the border and, she said in the past, to hold the show dogs that she raises, Pomeranians and poodles. It's inside our property line. And when we bought the land, there was nothing on our deed or nothing on any of the old records saying that there was a 20-foot swath there. No restrictions on where you can put No anything. restrictions at all on any of our papers. Yeah. And we, when my contractor went down to the city and county of Blaine, they didn't have any restrictions on it. You basically showed them, here's what we're going to build. You showed them plans, a little mm-hmm. drawing. Of we the took lo- down a plan. And a drawing of the lot. Mm-hmm. And, and they looked at it, they said, fine. Yep, they said it was perfectly okay. Go ahead and build it. So, so how did you hear that your wall had become the matter of an international dispute? Um, a guy came to the door and knocked on the door and handed me a pamphlet and said I broke the treaty. What do you do? Do you invite him in? No, I just stood there with my mouth wide open and looked at him and I said, I don't understand. I broke a treaty. What treaty? Surprisingly, it's relatively rare. We maybe get one or two instances per year, but most people that live along the boundary know about the boundary. They know about the restriction on on building permanent obstructions uh, within 10 feet of the boundary line. This is Dennis Shornak. He was the U.S. representative to the International Boundary Commission at the time. And if all of this sounds like a lot of fuss over a three-foot encroachment to our 5,500-mile border with Canada, well, you have to understand that the two boundary commissioners see themselves as custodians of a 100-year-old trust to keep the border clear in a fair, even-handed way, with no favoritism to either side. With that in mind, they send out crews every summer to chop down trees. They have bulldozed buildings. A couple years ago, Commissioner Sharnock and his Canadian counterpart had to visit 40 Canadian homeowners and give them the news that they gave the loos, which is why they didn't cut the loos any slack. They want to treat everybody, Canadians and Americans, exactly the same. There was one exception granted back in the 70s, and it was always referred to uh, by uh, staff and in, in documents as, quote, the mistake. Um, but there, haven't, there are no other exceptions that I'm aware of uh, all along this 5,525-mile boundary. But then... On April 6, 2007, Shirley Lou and her husband did something that no American citizen had ever done in 100 years. They sued the Boundaries Commission, saying that they have the right to build this wall on their own land. It's my property. I paid for it. I pay taxes on it. It belongs to me. It doesn't belong to the United States. It doesn't belong to Canada. It belongs to me. I paid for it. And at that point, this stopped being a story about some retirees and the wall they built, and it became something much, much bigger. The Pacific Legal Foundation, a conservative watchdog group for property rights issues, the oldest one, one of the best known in the country, took the Luz case for free. The boundary commissioners were very worried about what kind of precedent this lawsuit might set. So they went to the State Department for advice. But officials there said, we can't actually help you because you are not part of the United States government. You are an international body. Go hire your own lawyer. So 
They hooked up with a fancy private attorney who handles these kinds of big international cases, a guy named Dr. Elliot Feldman. When Canadian lumber barons or Australian wheat gluten magnates need to hire some guy to deal with their tariffs or their import quota problems, they call Elliot. He's that guy. And Elliot Feldman did a little research, and as best as he could tell, the commissioner did seem to have a pretty solid case. He wasn't doing anything different from previous commissioners. He was probably right in doing what he was doing. The international treaty that gave him that power had been ratified by the Senate, and according to the Constitution, any treaty that goes through that process becomes the supreme law of the United States. All very straightforward. But then, the U.S. government did a very strange about-face. Remember, the State Department had originally suggested that the commission hire its own lawyer. But then, Commissioner Chernak found himself on the phone with a senior official from the Department of Justice named Ron Tempass, who seemed to think otherwise. He was rather brittle and rather harsh and uh, declared that I had to fire Dr. Feldman and turn total control of the case over to the Department of Justice. It was very threatening, quite frankly. And he said that I personally risked uh, exposure under criminal laws if I continued to retain and pay uh, Dr. Feldman. He refused to discuss the law or, or their approach to the case, other than to note that with respect to the Pacific Legal Fund, uh, he said, we know them and they know us. I'm sure we can work something out. That actually sounded alarming to the commissioner. Like Mr. Tenpass might actually agree with the Lews and the Pacific Legal Foundation. And about a, a week later, uh, I was summoned to his office along with my uh, deputy commissioner. And at my insistence, I took along uh, Dr. Feldman. And we were met there at the Justice Department by a, literally a, a phalanx of nine uh, attorneys. And Mr. Tenpass uh, opened the meeting by declaring, uh, quote, there's no question that the IBC is an agency of the United States government. Now, this might sound like nothing to you and me, but to Commissioner Shornak, this was pretty much the worst thing that Tempest could have said. The IBC, the International Boundary Commission, Mr. Shornak's commission, had managed the border for 100 years independently, without interference, as an international organization. Here, they were saying... You may think it's an international organization, but we're not going to treat it as an international organization. We're going to treat it as subject to the authority of the president. Again, that's Elliot Feldman, the commissioner's lawyer. He says this was basically a power grab. The president's men at the Justice Department included some strong supporters of private property rights. They'd given speeches. They'd litigated on behalf of those rights in the past. And at this meeting, they indicated a certain sympathy for the loose property rights claims. Ron Tempest said, according to the commissioner, don't you agree they have a Fifth Amendment right to their private property? A lawyer from the State Department said he agreed with the Lou's point of view. Don't you agree, he asked the commissioner. The commissioner did not. He and his Canadian counterpart wanted the wall to come down. And Elliot Feldman said the whole point of the 1908 treaty, which created the commission, was to keep politicians from doing exactly what the Justice Department lawyers were doing right then, interfering with what happens on the border. The treaties came about because there'd been over 100 years of, of armed conflict along our border with Canada. Americans don't remember any of that, perhaps. But Teddy Roosevelt, in, in, at the beginning of the century, undertook a series of treaties to try to pacify all kinds of questions. And this treaty, the 1908 treaty, and the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909, was all part of, of that general movement to say these kinds of things we don't want to have wars about anymore. We don't want any more violence about this. We're going to settle it. And the way to settle it is to depoliticize it, turn it over to technicians, let them sort out the border. So the treaty has words in it like 
uh, expert and surveyor and geographer. The, and it's, a, it's, it's if you like, I like to think of it as one of the first technocratic treaties mm-hmm. where you cede power to technocrats and you say to them, scientifically, you figure out exactly where the border is. You mark it and maintain it. We won't interfere. The two countries have to do everything jointly. The two commissioners are required to act by consensus only, and they're not to be interfered with. And that way, we don't have a border conflict. That was the old way of viewing the commission. And for 100 years, it worked. The border's been peaceful. But in this meeting in the Justice Department, the Assistant Attorney General, Ron Tempest, outlined a new way of seeing it. Commissioner Schornack should see himself as serving the president and doing what the president wants. The commissioner was, after all, appointed to this job by President Bush. The Justice Department lawyers told him that sometimes the interest of the commission would be subordinate to other U.S. interests. And of course, most important of all, he was told that the commission itself is not independent. It is not one Canadian and one American commissioner deciding everything together. It is just another agency of the U.S. government taking its orders from the president. Here's Dennis Shornak. I was literally floored by that because for, well, this is an old organization. We have archives full of memoranda and documents, including some from the Department of Justice itself, clearly stating that we were an independent treaty organization. Well, it, well if, if they thought that you were part of the United States, what did they think that your co-commissioner, who was Canadian, like what did they make of his existence? I mean, he existed as your co-partner in running the thing. Well, I, I think you would have to ask them that. And uh, I don't know. I, tr- I, <laughs> I can't speak for them. Now, in this meeting, did they tell you you better watch out or this could cost you your jobs? Did they, were they as direct as that? Uh, yeah, they were. It was rather blunt at, at times. Um, they it couched it in terms like, uh, we'll take this to a higher authority. But it was uh, very obvious to me what was at stake. That, to me, was very plainly a threat to his job. Uh, And in the course of the meeting, they had also made reference um, to they would see to it that we, the lawyers, would never be paid. And so uh, we were being threatened, you'll never be paid. He was being threatened, you'll lose your job. And those were what I think they believed to be the principal levers to get what they wanted. Justice Department officials, including Ron Tempass, declined the chance to be interviewed for this story. A spokesman sent this email. We believe that we have a duty not to discuss deliberations that are protected by attorney-client privilege. In addition, the district court judge has cautioned the parties regarding their comments to the press. But in court documents and transcripts from the Lewis lawsuit, the Justice Department explains their perspective. There's actually an interesting moment in the oral arguments where Assistant Attorney General Brian Kipnis tells Judge Marsha Peckman how hard it was for the State Department and various parts of the Justice Department and Homeland Security to even figure out where they stood in the issues in this case. This is the first lawsuit ever against the commission by an American. And the relevant 1908 and 1925 treaties don't say much about how the commissioners should be doing their jobs and about what kind of entity the commission is. Assistant Attorney General Brian Kipnis says to the judge at one point, what I was trying to convey to you is the fact that this isn't about politics. This isn't about ideology. This is about trying to get it right. This is about dealing with a lawsuit which involves issues that are, to be generous, murky. Judge Peckman of the Ninth Circuit is skeptical. Mr. Kipnis, she says, you say this isn't about politics, but there is a lot in this case that kind of looks like politics. It smells like politics. It talks like politics. What about this case isn't about politics? It certainly isn't about a Pomeranian dog run. 
And then uh, Brian Kipnis says something that gets to the heart of the government's case. He says, if there's one thing that presents great problems for us, it would be where somebody who is a U.S. commissioner, who represents the U.S. in international relations, takes positions in lawsuits that are not consistent with the Department of Justice, to have a U.S. commissioner that is not under our control, taking positions we do not agree with. That is the government's view. The Dennis Shornax lawyer says that's actually the point of this treaty, to cut the president and his men out of the equation. And this case is the very case that the treaties were written to prevent. That is, here's a president saying to a commissioner, I don't want you to do something you think you're supposed to do on the border. And the commissioner is saying, Mr. President, I have to do it. I'm, I'm sworn to the treaty. This is my obligation. And the president says, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do at the border, I'll fire you. And the treaties were designed to say he can't do that because there's to be no political interference. Feldman says this action on the 1908 treaty is typical of the way this particular administration deals with treaties. We are routinely lawless, he says. There's big stuff that's been in the news, like the president unilaterally declaring that treaties like the Geneva Convention don't apply to certain kinds of prisoners, a kind of reinterpretation the presidents haven't done before this way. But there's also small stuff that most of us haven't heard of. During one of our interviews, something popped up on Feldman's computer screen about a World Trade Organization case he's been following. And the news story that popped up on my screen um, was that the United States has refused to comply with the WTO ruling. And the United Mm. States does this routinely. It routinely refuses to comply with WTO rulings and complains that the WTO isn't being fair to the United States. The United States is a very sore loser. And when it loses, it simply doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And and how how can we do that? I, I'm not sure I understand. Like if, if, if it's a treaty that we've signed, isn't it exactly the same as U.S. law? Aren't all the people deciding not to do it? Aren't, aren't they basically breaking the law? Yeah, but there are no enforcement mechanisms. The, the U.N. can't enforce anything. Neither can the WTO. Boston Globe reporter Charlie Savage has followed the way the Bush administration has dealt with international treaties. The administration has taken a very aggressive view that the president is not bound by treaties that have been ratified by Congress, by the Senate, uh, across a range of issues, or that the president alternatively has the power to reinterpret for himself what those treaties mean. He says the change really started on December 13, 2001, when President Bush, on his own, pulled the U.S. out of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Before this, it hadn't been clear if the president could do that. This is a huge defense treaty. He doesn't go to Congress. He doesn't go to the Senate to see if they want to de-ratify it. He just sort of does it on his own. And that locks down now into precedent the idea uh, that a president, in fact, has that authority because Congress sort of went home. They didn't challenge him on it. You know, and there were people at the time saying, well, wait a minute. Is that really how it's supposed to work? What, what if some future president wants to dis you know, it goes crazy and wants to pull us out of the United Nations or pull us out of NATO. Uh, because of the Bush precedent now, a President Obama or a President Clinton could simply declare we're out of NAFTA without going to Congress. Uh, and that would be an example where conservatives would probably not be very happy about the fact that this sort of policy decision had been made without any even consultation of Congress. For two weeks after their meeting at the Justice Department, Dennis Shornak and Elliot Feldman tried to get higher-level officials to step in and take their side in this dispute. But no luck. Finally, Dennis Shornak got a call from a White House official in the personnel office. 
and after some brief uh, pleasantries, he proceeded to explain once again uh, to me the nature of unitary government. That uh, you know, he said we we all work for the president and we serve at his pleasure, and that I had until three o'clock that day to fire Dr. Feldman and turn everything over to the Justice Department, or else that pleasure would run out. He went on to ask me if I was a Republican. He, he questioned my patriotism. And so at 3 o'clock, I, I called him back and said that the commission would not fire Dr. Feldman and that what he was asking me to do was, in my view, to breach my oath to the treaty, and I just wouldn't do that. What did he say? Fine, and he hung up. Now, do you agree that you serve at the pleasure of the president? Well, no, <laughs> not not as boundary commissioner. I believe I serve under the instrument of the treaty, and uh, the treaty is very clear that a president can only fill vacancies. So I believe, and I believe my, and my lawyer uh, advises me, I'm still commissioner, but I'm here in East Lansing and uh, not in Washington, D.C. And then, if I understand right, the White House appointed somebody else to be the commissioner. They did. Um, there was uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of David Bernhardt. He came in uh, one day and uh, took that day to, I guess, go through you know, all my email or something and, and also to send a letter to Dr. Feldman uh, asking him to do no more work on the case. And uh, it's my understanding, because I, I still talk with my staff in Washington, that uh, he essentially hasn't been in the office since. Chernak and his lawyer Feldman both continue to say that they have not been fired. Boundary Commissioner is one of those positions like International Trade Commissioner or the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, where the president can appoint you, but he cannot fire you. Which meant that what followed were several months of very odd legal wrangling with two sets of lawyers, the Justice Department and Elliot Feldman's team, each claiming to represent the Boundary Commission and two commissioners, each claiming he was the real commissioner. At one point, the Lou's attorneys from the Pacific Legal Foundation filed a motion pleading with the court, quote, before this case proceeds any further, this mess needs to be sorted out. The Lou's are entitled to know which of the two defense teams represents the defendants. Canada, by the way, stayed out of this, saying it was up to the U.S. to figure out. Finally, in October, Judge Peckman in the U.S. District Court in the Ninth Circuit ruled that the president did, in fact, have the power to fire Commissioner Shornak. Judge Peckman didn't disagree with the arguments that Shornak's lawyer made about the treaty and how it intended to set up a boundary commission that would act independently, insulated from the president's power. But she said there are a whole other set of rules and precedents regarding who the president can fire that took priority in this case. Dennis Shornak is appealing the judge's decision. Now, now you were a, a supporter of President Bush. I was, yes. Did you campaign for him? I did worked quite hard on both of his campaigns. So what do you make of this treatment? Well, you know, I'm uh, extraordinarily uh, disappointed. I mean, I think this is uh, just a terrible thing. And it's one reason, Ira, that I'm talking to you, because I believe the president and his men here must be stopped. 
I'm shocked and and stunned at this seeming desire to push uh, this very narrow property rights agenda, you know, over all of those other considerations. If Dennis Chernock loses his very last appeal, then the Lews will finally get their day in court with somebody. And it'll be the Justice Department representing the commission. If the Justice Department decides to come to a settlement, if they decide that it is okay for the Lews to keep their wall, Dennis Chernock fears that it'll be impossible for the commission to stop anybody else from building along the border. Uh, the commission would be eviscerated that it would have no longer have uh, any authority to do its job. Uh, the United States not only is, is uh, pushing the commission around on this case, but they've fallen behind in funding for the commission as well. There's, it's supposed to be a 50-50 deal uh, according to the treaty, but for the last three years, two-thirds of the resources have come from Canada. And what would the rationale for that be? Like, like it seems like this commission is doing the least controversial thing possible, which is maintaining the border with a country that we're entirely at peace at. Uh-huh. I, it, it's, it astounds me. I don't understand it. Recently, he says, the Department of Homeland Security came to the commission and asked it to clear trees and brush for 10 miles of the border in New York State so it could test its new electronic fence. Now, if the commission were actually a U.S. government agency doing that job, they would have to pay homeowners for the foliage they were tearing down under the takings clause of the Constitution. The federal government can't do stuff like that without paying you back. But because the commission is an international agency and not the U.S. government, the Boundaries Commission doesn't pay anybody back. Which leads to this interesting thought. This whole lawsuit could lead to a very counterintuitive and undesirable result for the government. If the administration chooses to let the Lews have their wall, if they prevail in their argument that the Boundary Commission is actually an agency of the United States government, then the short-term result is going to be that it'll be a lot harder and a lot more expensive to keep the U.S.-Canadian border clear and secure. But coming up, what could be harsher than playing hardball with volunteer firemen who died on 9-11? Okay, maybe nothing, but something that's just as harsh. In a minute, from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our show, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, The Audacity of Government. Stories of the Bush administration's lawyering, unrelenting style, 
where they're inventing new ways to be unrelenting, even on tiny matters that most of us have never even heard of. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, This American Wife. We have this story from Jack Hitt. Who doesn't love a good love story? Think about that moment when you first saw that girl or that guy over there, and then, like the Big Bang, it expanded into everything. Even when these stories are about people we don't know, you feel a thrill, and then a little jealousy that it's not you. Like this one, about Raquel and Derek. Raquel is from Brazil and came to Florida to see America and learn to be a nurse. And then she met Derek one night on the way home from a party at a gas station. They talked, but it was getting late, and she had work the next day. Well, let Raquel tell it. And then we exchanged telephone numbers. I went home. He said, what time are you going to be back tomorrow from work? And I said, I'll be home around 5 o'clock. And 5 o'clock, my, the telephone the telephone <laughs> rang. <laughs> and I was like, wow, how are you doing? <laughs> I didn't expect you to call me exactly at 5, 5 or 3 or something. I just walked in the house. He didn't give me any chance to breathe. <laughs> A year later, Raquel and Derek got married, and for her to stay in the U.S. as his wife, she had to become a legal resident. So here's how this is supposed to work. You apply for a green card, and then sometime in the first two years, you have to go through a personal interview to prove the marriage is real. Soon enough, Raquel and Derek had some pretty solid proof. We were actually in our supposedly honeymoon on New Orleans, and I went to the cafe the Café du Monde in the corner right there oh, yeah. and had some sure. beignets <laughs> with Café Latte. Right, right. <laughs> and then I I just had some upset stomach right after mm. that. So that clicked in my head that, hmm, something, something must do. And I told him, he said, oh, baby, you got you to gotta get the test or something. So when we get back, I got the test and, and it was positive. And we're like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I'm pregnant. This personal interview they were waiting for is conducted by the Immigration Service, known as the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS. You know this interview. It's practically part of American legend. It's where some immigration officer grills a couple with intimate questions about the color of their wallpaper or whether the husband sleeps in pajamas. Sometimes getting the interview scheduled can take a few months, sometimes dozens of months. It just depends on when USCIS gets around to it. And typically, it's no big deal. Nothing interferes with the process going forward, with one exception, one devastating exception. Eighteen months into their marriage, Raquel woke up to find Derek, who'd been complaining of insomnia, in the living room. When I looked at him in the couch, I, I could tell that something something was going on and something was wrong. And then I I got closer and, like, baby, and, and called him, and he, I just can see that he's not breathing. Then I jumped, and I did everything I could, CPR or whatever, and then I jumped in the phone and get, get the phone and, and just start desperate and say, I need somebody here to help me, please. So it was tough, and uh, 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 the worst day in my life. Derek had suffered from sleep apnea, and that night he died of heart failure, leaving Raquel a widow. She moved in with her in-laws, and after a few weeks, worked up enough energy 
to go tell immigration what had happened. She wanted to find out how best to finish up the application for residency so she could get on with the business of raising their son, Ian. I made an appointment, went there, and I gave, uh, I told my, I gave Derek a death certificate. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, your case is going to be denied. You're going to have to go back to Brazil. You're going to have a, a letter from, from us. And because you guys were not two years married. And I said, but uh, what? wait a minute. Uh, I have my son here with me. He's an American citizen. I said, yes, ma'am, but you can, yeah, you can go. He can stay. Just like that. Wow. I mean, was there, how did you react to that? Yeah, I just said, "Uh uh-huh, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course, my son's going to go wherever I go. Right, right. So at this point, you just, did you just leave the the immigration office? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think I'm just going to go out of that door right there. And then I actually got the, the letter that our case was denied. So you got that piece of paper. Right. And, th- and then what did you do? We started thinking, contact lawyers mm-hmm. uh, to see what we could do. Because right there and then, I'm illegal. There is no rule saying automatic denial. There is no law passed by Congress mandating automatic denial. They just made the law up. That's Brent Renison, the lawyer who finally took Raquel's case. In his regular job, his paying job, he's a corporate lawyer, mostly for Nike and some other companies, and he specializes in employee immigration issues. He's become possibly our nation's leading expert in cases like Raquel's, entirely by accident. Six years ago, a woman found him in the Yellow Pages. It was an odd little case of signed, sealed, but not delivered, A woman had filed all her papers to become a resident, and very close to the two-year mark, her husband died of cancer. So the government turned her down. Really, I thought that would be the sort of one strange case on this that I'd ever have. Mm -hmm. Then um, Carla Freeman came into my office, and um, it happened all over again. Carla had uh, had the same kind of situation. Uh, Bob Freeman was heading to uh, to work, actually on his day off, and uh, a Pepsi truck uh, went went right across the center lane into his lane and, and collided with his car head-on, killing him instantly. And that's when I met her. Um, I went went with her to her uh, immigration interview. And uh, we went into the uh, officer's uh, um, office there, and um, you know he had her stand and swear to tell the truth. And we sat down and started talking about the application. He um, uh, he said, you know, there's somebody here to see you. And we turned and looked, and in the doorway was a uh, an officer. He showed her his badge, and he said. Um, Mrs. Freeman, I'd like to uh, first offer my condolences on your loss. Uh, But I have to ask you to come with me. And she was just terrified. And uh, they took her away. 
They shackled her in chains and put her in a holding cell. Renison ran down the street to the federal court and managed to get an emergency order to get her out. He couldn't believe it had gotten this far, because it seemed so obvious that an absurd unfairness lie at the heart of these cases. And here it is. If immigration had scheduled that personal interview before Carla's husband died, Carla would have become a resident. But because there was a delay, and he died before the bureaucracy got around to it, she is subject to what they call automatic denial. It all depends on the timing of the bureaucracy, not the facts of the case or the reality of the marriage. And when Renison did some research into this rule, he found something that seemed impossible. This particular rule had long ago been debunked and discarded by none other than the agency's own Board of Immigration Appeals. Yeah, it comes from a, uh, a decision in 1970 which dealt with a woman who had uh, married a, an American citizen who was in the Navy. And while out at sea on duty, he died, mm-hmm. and they denied her, saying she was stripped of the status of a spouse. And for years after that, if your spouse died, you'd be denied residency because they were no longer your spouse. That was in 1970. Then in 1985, there was another case, Matter of Sano, um, that was litigated on the very same issue. And the court, the same court, um, said, whoa, we made a mistake. Uh, we had no jurisdiction to rule in that type of case. We're going to modify that accordingly. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we think that that decision was inappropriate. I mean, the words inappropriate were used, and they're modifying the decision. So understand what happened here. In 1985, the immigration court held that it had no business deciding who was a spouse and who wasn't a spouse. In legal terms, no jurisdiction to decide this matter. But instead of changing the rule, the bureaucracy came up with an interpretation that let them keep doing what they were doing all along. Number one, they said they still had the power to say, you're not a spouse, based on the 1970 case. And number two, you have no right to appeal. Now, how do they, how do they draw the, the no right to appeal from the second case? Because there's no jurisdiction from the court. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Well, so they, they draw these two they draw two completely at odds sort of uh, conclusions from these two cases. Right, exactly. So they can strip you of your status and you can't review it. Exactly. I'll read to you a, a, a portion of the letter that is very much the standard letter here for um, denial. Okay. Um, this particular letter says, The evidence of record indicates that your husband passed away on June 2, 2005. Um, you are no longer the spouse of a citizen and therefore not entitled to the status as immediate relative. There is no appeal to this decision. And, and that's right from one of the denials. And they all have a little different flavor. Some say, uh, some say, I'm sorry for your loss, or please accept our condolences for your loss, but, you know, you're denied and you have no appeal. It, it's very Kafkaesque. Renison became obsessed with these cases, and as word got out about him, more and more widows and widowers showed up at his door. When I talked to him, he had 134 clients. In 2006, he wound up in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals with Carla Freeman, the client he saw put in shackles. And the court ruled expansively in his favor, saying, a spouse is a spouse. Here's precisely what they said. Quote, Congress clearly intended an alien widow whose citizen spouse had filed the necessary forms to be and to remain an immediate relative, a spouse, even if the citizen spouse dies within two years of the marriage, 
end quote. Case closed, right? Exactly. With one exception. One devastating exception. After she won her court case, mm-hmm. they decided to find some other reason to deny her. And, you know, this is directly quoted from their denial. Since your late husband is deceased, denial of your admission will not have any legally cognizable effect on him. And the word legally cognizable, I mean, that's a a legal term, but I think it just means that he's not going to, you know, he's not going to know what's going on with your case, and so why should we care? In other words, even though she won her case, they found other grounds to throw her out and fought this Ninth Circuit ruling in every possible way. They didn't obey it outside the Ninth Circuit. In fact, in three other circuits around the country, widows have won similar arguments, and every case is being appealed by the Immigration Service. Inside the Ninth Circuit itself, they've dragged their feet. And finally, when forced to reply to a class-action lawsuit brought by Renison, the government issued a memo two days before the deadline that said they'd abide by the Freeman ruling, but only in the Ninth Circuit and only if the spouse met some tough conditions. Among them, spouses have to prove they need to stay in the United States for humanitarian reasons because of dangerous conditions in their home countries and they have nowhere else to go. And if some widow managed somehow to jump through all these hoops, the government could do to her what they did to Carla Freeman. To expel her from the country, they used a terrorism law. The Real ID Act of 2005 contains a clause that boosts immigration's power. Not only can they reject any immigrant at their discretion for any reason they want, now they don't have to tell anyone what that reason is. And they said those decisions that are made, as long as they're made on discretionary reasons, shall be unreviewable in any court. I'm sorry, isn't this like 1984 or something? This, I mean, it's, not to be yeah, to push it I'd to say the absurd, it's, but it's like yeah. you're going to have this spe- you have this special decision-making power that will be applied only with these special sort of standards. Oh, by the way, no one can know what the standards are. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's uh, you, you know, I think when you know when I laugh about this um, this uh, discretionary. Uh, you know, re- review, so to speak, and the lack of any appeal on it. It's, right. it's really nervous, nervous laughter because this, 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 these, are, these are people's lives that they're destroying. The most puzzling part of this whole story is this. What problem is the government trying to solve? What threat is worth these hardball tactics? It's not like there's a wave of widows storming our shores. These aren't fake marriages. These aren't suspected terrorists. These cases are rare. It's not like people are intentionally getting married, having kids, filing their paperwork, and then having their spouses accidentally die as a scheme to get a green card. How much much bureaucratic time would it take to just sort of process those 134 cases as compared to fighting this in all the circuit courts around the country? Well, they, they, uh, these people paid all the filing fees, and so they, there's no uh, additional burden. So, I mean, they could, they could hire like a couple of clerks, basically, to just sort of finish off the paperwork here and be done with this in a couple of weeks, practically. No, no, they don't have to hire any clerks. They do this as a regular business. They, <laughs> they adjudicate 30,000 applications for benefits a day. Wow. And this is 134. And they're going to the mat 
for the right to automatically deny these 134 widows? I'd say, yeah, they're going to the mat. Why? I've been on the mat for a while with them. <laughs> why do you think? Why, why is this such a sort of, you know, point of contention for them? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know. You've reached the Office of Communications for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. If you're a member of the media, please press 1 now. Office of Communications. Uh, Chris Radigan? This is Chris. Hi, Chris. This is Jack Hitt from This American Life. Hey, Jack. Hi. Um, I'm recording this for broadcast, if uh, if that's okay. Not with my permission. No. Can, oh, can we get your permission? No. That's as much as immigration would tell me. And it took weeks to hear that. I had called Immigration Service and the Department of Homeland Security and sent emails, getting either passed on or sent to a voicemail. The main thing I wanted to ask was, why? Chris Radigan wouldn't tell me why. It's possible the Immigration Service sees this as just another part of the crackdown on immigrants that began after September 11th, trying to send anybody it can home. But in this case, it seems like it's more about an agency that's doggedly determined to win. Just look at the constant barrage of legal talent and massive expenditures of tax money by the Immigration Service in order to toss out these widows. Renison now has a class action suit on behalf of the 134 spouses, and he's adding more spouses every week. Brent, isn't it likely that you'll just win this case and then they'll just invoke discretionary power at every case after that? And throw everybody um, out anyway? I, I, I really hope not. Well, I mean, don't you think that's a very possibility since it happened in the Ninth Circuit? Yes. I, I, try, I try not to, to, to think about that too much because it's really overwhelming. Um, the power that's been given to the executive branch. And, it, you know, I'd like to take some of that back, but um, it's not my uh, job to do that. It's Congress and it's the courts. I mean, that's how our system works. It, it, you know, if Congress and the courts can't keep the executive branch in check, I, you know, then we're really hurting in this country. What's your, what's your greatest fear? And all this. What's your nightmare outcome? I, I, I know what it is, but I... Are you afraid to say it because you think it might come true? Oh, well, I don't know if I want to... I don't know if I... Well... <clears throat> I, I think I think my worst fear is that uh, that I'll die before this is is changed. How old are you, Brent? I'm 39. I mean, do you think you might be litigating this for the rest of your life? Is that what you're saying? I I will if they don't change this policy. If Renison sounds overwhelmed, it's not because he's got 134 clients, but because he's also fighting for the old-fashioned justice system, the one where a good argument before a neutral judge could prevail. 
Renison can sound over the top when he talks about this stuff, invoking the Founding Fathers, quoting America's original documents, and saying words like tyranny. But what kind of language are you supposed to use when you reread the Declaration of Independence and realize it's just a laundry list of complaints about a unitary executive granting too much power to petty bureaucrats? What are you supposed to say when you read a sentence like this one? He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. That old-timey language suddenly doesn't sound so old anymore. Jack Hitt leaves a new haven. Goodbye I'll be gone when you open your eyes I'm skipping down Like a stone thrown across the water Act 3, 44. A big part of the unrelenting style of this president is connected to a particular view of the presidency, that there are inherent executive powers embedded in the Constitution between the lines that the Congress has no right to oversee or regulate anything the president or the executive branch does. So, for example, you may have heard of President Bush issuing hundreds and hundreds of signing statements. This is uh, when Congress sends him a law to sign that has things in it that he doesn't think that they should be able to force him to do. Rather than go back to Congress and fight for a different bill, he simply signs the bill and then issues a signing statement listing all the parts of the bill that he intends to ignore. Earlier in the show, we heard from reporter Charlie Savage, who won the Pulitzer Prize reporting on these issues for the Boston Globe. He's also written a history of all the ways that the president has claimed powers that other presidents haven't claimed, a book called Takeover. This is about to come out in paperback. Those uh, quotes from George Will and the other conservatives that I read to you from the beginning of the show actually come from his book. We were wondering what is going to happen next January to this presidential style, this unrelenting style, when the 44th president is sworn in. And Charlie Savage has interviewed the current candidates about where they stand on these questions of presidential power that we've been talking about. McCain, Clinton, and Obama all had reservations uh, about some of the things that the Bush administration has done, some of the legal claims they've made. Uh, McCain, Clinton, and Obama all seemed to suggest that they would take a more restrained view of executive power when it came to the question of whether a president had to obey treaties that might restrict what he or she could do as commander-in-chief. and laws involving surveillance and interrogation, in in marked contrast, I should say, to, for example, uh, the now-defunct candidate Mitt Romney, who embraced everything the Bush administration had done. And had he become the Republican uh, nominee, I think we would have seen uh, a much starker contrast between uh, whoever the eventual Democrat is and the Republican um, McCain Mm. more restrained. On the other hand, there were some differences, sometimes in in surprising ways. For example, uh, John McCain... Uh, has said uh, that he, if elected president, will never issue a signing statement, that he will only sign a bill or veto it, period. And both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, while criticizing the Bush administration's rather aggressive use of signing statements, nevertheless say that they will keep using signing statements to reserve a right to bypass provisions of law that they say contradict the Constitution, just less aggressively than Bush has done. The three candidates, uh, where did they stand on on the power to bypass laws uh, in the way that the Bush administration has done? For example, the FISA law, which was designed to force the the president 
uh, to authorize any kind of wiretaps with a secret court before he did the wiretaps. I asked all three of them whether they thought the president had inherent power under the Constitution to conduct surveillance for national security purposes without judicial warrants, even if a federal statute said a judicial warrant was necessary. And all three of them said that they did not think a president had that power. John McCain said, I don't think the president has the right to disobey any law. Now, the problem with these questions is that there's still a lot of unanswered questions sort of embedded in an answer, like, I don't think the president has the right to disobey any law. The Bush administration might say that superficially, too, but what they contend is that the law that restricts the pres, the statute that restricts the president's actions, is not a law at all because it's unconstitutional, uh, insofar as it as it restricts the president's constitutional powers, and therefore it's just you know a bunch of words on a page, but it's not law. What what did the candidates say about the power to disobey or ignore treaties that the U.S. has already signed? McCain, and Obama, and Clinton all indicated that they took a mainstream understanding that a ratified treaty was binding on the executive. And the question, of course, will be, how do that? How does that carry over once they're in office, once they're not being judged by voters, but are instead being forced to govern in difficult circumstances? One of the things that's interesting about this as well is that Senator McCain's campaign legal advisors now are headed up by Ted Olson, who was a key player in the Bush administration's legal team. He was the Solicitor General. Uh, Ted Olson has been part of a movement that has adopted a much broader view of a president's power. And so it's one thing for a president to uh, say, as a general matter, I think these things are binding. But a lot of the lifting here happens several layers lower in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, in the White House Counsel's Office, in sort of day-to-day matters and legal memos that are complicated and that may never come to the president's attention. Uh, And so who the president hires... I think will also have uh, enormous implications for whether these trends continue or are stabilized or even are rolled back. Um, are there other questions that you asked the candidates? One thing that was interesting is I asked them whether they believed that the Constitution allows a president to imprison a U.S. citizen uh, without trial or charges. And... Uh, What's interesting about that question is that the Supreme Court, in the case of Yasser Hamdi, and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, in the case of Jose Padilla, have said, yes, uh, you can be held perpetually. And so when I asked the candidates whether they thought that this, the Constitution allowed that kind of perpetual executive detention, uh, McCain pointed, out, pointed to that precedent, uh, and... Obama and Clinton said, no, they didn't think the Constitution allowed that, which is interesting because now we have courts that have said, yes, it does allow that. There have been 20 presidential debates on the Democratic side and and fewer on the Republican side, but still a lot. It's been a year of campaigning. Um, Do you believe you see much discussion of these issues at all? There's been virtually no discussion of these constitutional issues. It's something that everyone should be paying attention to. And the changes over the last seven or eight years have been so dramatic that what the next president does with the legacy they will inherit from the Bush administration will be enormously important. If the, if the next president keeps exercising these powers, they will become further embedded in our system, and that will just be how our democracy works going forward.
Is it your sense that one of the reasons why this has not become a more active issue in the presidential debate is because most people simply don't understand the kinds of powers the president has been claiming for himself? I think that's right. I think that most people uh, who don't pay attention to this stuff on a day-to-day basis, uh, it, it, it's a little bit abstract. In a way, it's very abstract, but in a way, I have to say, it's, it's, the, it's the most basic thing in the world. It's, it's, does the president think he's above the law? It is, but you know, it's it, it is and it isn't because, of course, the Bush administration's legal theories is is all about what is the law. You know, they say, of course, the president's not above the law, but in their view, the law is not a statute that Congress has passed and that a president had signed, but the law is this sort of unwritten, sweeping, inherent, undefined constitutional powers of the president as commander in chief to do whatever he or she thinks is necessary at any given moment to protect national security uh, at his or her own discretion. That's the law, quote-unquote. So the, the semantics here quickly become uh, easily clouded. It's very easy for a legal team to write a scholarly-seeming brief uh, that says the law is not what the law appears to be. The law is whatever the president wants to do at any given moment. And here's a bunch of sites, and here's a bunch of pages and uh, this memo is never going to see the light of day, but now you are cleared, sir, to proceed and do whatever it is you want, and no one will ever be prosecuted for it because we've decided it's illegal. That's certainly what the, this, this administration did over and over and over again, and there's uh, very little to prevent future administrations of either party from doing that going forward. In fact, it's easier now than it was before because of all the precedents that have been established during the past seven or eight years. Charlie Savage, author of the book, Takeover. Declare independence. Don't let them do that to you. Well, program was produced today by Jane Feltis and myself with Alex Bloomberg, John Jeter, Sarah Koenig, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Production help from Seth Land and Emily Youssef. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Special thanks today to Deanna Engstrom, Brian Hodges, Kathleen Horan of WNYC, and KUOW's Sarah Gustavus. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by the Saab 9-3 family. A sport sedan, sport combi, and an all-season convertible. Saab, born from jets. Learn more at saabusa.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who looks out over the pledge room at the money coming in and rubs his hands together like Gollum, saying... It's my property. I paid for it. It belongs to me. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Declare independence. Don't let them do that to you. Make your own flag. Make your own flag. Make your own flag. PRI Public Radio International.